Before we begin, a disclaimer. This podcast is for information only. I am not a mental health or medical professional, nor are my guests unless otherwise stated. My guests and I do not speak for or represent any recovery programs or workshops. I do not sell ads on this podcast, and I do not make any money from it. And finally, I want to warn you that some episodes may contain content about emotional, physical, and sexual abuse, which some listeners may find triggering or dysregulating. Hello, and welcome to the Loving Parent Podcast. If you're new here, this is where we explore the ideas of becoming our own loving parents and reparenting our trauma to build resilience. If you've been here before, welcome back. My name is Brita, and I'm your host. In this episode, I'm welcoming to the podcast Scotty. Scotty's somebody I don't know well, and I'm very curious to get to know more about him. One of the things that I really admire about Scotty is his interest in the neuroscience of both the trauma and the recovery from our childhoods. So, Scotty, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. It's good to be here. Great. Now, I want you to start, if you would, please, by describing the family you were born into. In other words, were your parents both there? Were they married? Was it happy? Your birth order? That kind of thing. I call it a trauma hood. My parents were divorced when I was two and a half. So I was briefly with my parents together, but I don't remember it at all. Mm-hmm. And um, I have one sister two years older than I am. So I was the second child. Mm-hmm. And so... Yeah, it was not, uh, my, my mother's pretty much a raging alcoholic. Uh, from the day I can remember, I just would witness her drinking a lot and smoking pot, and that was her combo plate. So after my parents were divorced, I was devastated, of course, at two and a half. I didn't understand mm-hmm. anything about loss, or there was no transition. It was all of a sudden... I was always a captive to, to my mother. It was, it was just, it felt like slave, like I was a slave. Mm-hmm. So um, I pretty much had to live with her, even though I would cry every day to live with my father. And he would come around occasionally, but it was more like weekends or every other weekend, I guess I had, you know, time with my dad. Right. It was did he live time. nearby? He did. Yeah. Okay. Okay. So, yeah, um, I was uh, pretty much without any, parenting it, it, I just felt like I had to always parent myself so what would you say your family role was I think I've heard you say lost child but you know we have the hero the scapegoat the lost child or the clown or entertainer yeah yeah I put these four roles down um let me get my notes but yeah I was lost child and scapegoat for sure mm-hmm. And I feel like the invisible one, you know, that that's mm-hmm. an important role too, because I, I didn't have a right to my needs or wants. Right. And I really, um, I had to be the good son also. That was sort of like the mm. forced into being the good one all the time. The perfect kind of perfect one. I think that's a, a, a problem I still have today is perfectionism as a result of that. Mm-hmm. Uh, the bad child, that's another one, lost and bad child. Yeah. yeah. Well, 
I've heard it said that the first two roles have to be filled. There has to be a hero and there has to be a scapegoat. And then if there are more children or children play dual roles, then the other roles get filled. So it sounds like you got your two assigned. Yeah, more than two. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's different flavors of the two as well, you know, but they're, they're, they're impactful because, uh, you know, there's a difference between say being a scapegoat and then being, um, you know, having to, uh, be needless and warrantless, but that's all part of it. So, right. Did you have step parents and additional siblings as time went on? Not really. I had some grandparents that played some roles in my life, but they were just pretty much on the periphery. I was really abused by babysitters that really had permission to mess with me. It was really traumatic. I think that's probably the biggest trauma I have is, is babysitters that were pretty much doing a lot of caretaking during the divorce. Mm-hmm. Were either of your parents diagnosed mentally ill? Not diagnosed, but I've always had what I call foamy fear of mental illness. And I do mm-hmm. believe one of my grandparents was diagnosed, uh, great-grandparent, just, and my mother had I mean, mental illness can be very undetected. So I think she had very undetected mental illness. Right, especially under the cover of alcoholism. Yeah. Do you remember being parentified at all, having to assume the parental role and take care of your sister or your mother or your father? Believe it or not, no. That's just one thing I, I was not subjected to. I think I had to grow up really early because I recognized there was no real productive or positive parenting coming down my way. But right. I didn't I didn't I don't feel like I, I got parentified by my parents. I mean maybe a little bit by my father because he lost his father. I mean there was there was trauma there, but I wouldn't say I got into heavy uh, parenting parentified roles at all now. Right. Yeah, I remember sitting down and listening to my mother tell me her horrible day or all the financial problems in the family. And I was probably five or six. Mm. Most of the time, I didn't even understand it. But now looking back, it's like I just took on her trauma and her anxiety. Actually, I want to give my parents credit. They knew that they didn't want to talk uh, behind each other's backs. And they made a conscious commitment to let us sort of decide what we needed in that. They, that that's one thing. They, they, they handled that one well. All right. Well, I think it's really cool for you to say that, too, because it's important yeah. to recognize we did get something. They didn't handle some. much anything else well, but I think they did handle that part well. <laughs> right. I mean, we did get something or we wouldn't have survived. So, And survival is a, you know, a term that can be used loosely. Do you know the term cookie people? No. Okay. It was coined, I believe, by Stephanie Brown. I've tried to look it up, but she's a writer from the 70s and 80s about adult children issues. And she said that cookie people are those folks that hand out little bits of self-esteem or caring and really help us get through our childhoods. And she says it could be a grandparent, it could be a neighbor, a teacher, a Sunday school teacher. So thinking about that definition, who were the cookie people in your life? I did have one teacher, uh, Copeland, Jeannie Copeland, that was very nurturing to me. That was uh, second grade. Mm-hmm. I don't. I, I'd say my friends probably. I, I really I bonded with my friends a lot, and we, you know, had very close friendships with just a, a couple brothers. But I'd say they were probably my main cookie people. Okay. And, and, and one teacher. 
Okay. Did you move around a lot as a kid or were you pretty stationary? Pretty stationary, yeah. Okay. Well, that's a blessing too in in many ways because you do get to develop those friendships that can last for years. Yes. Yeah, I I did, you know, move a little bit here. Mostly I, I grew up in Santa Barbara, so um, we moved a few times, but nothing, nothing um, outrageous. Yeah. Okay. I love Santa Barbara, by the way. It's my, my getaway. Yeah. Okay. Now we're going to get into some of the harder stuff. Um, whatever you're willing to disclose, list the major traumas in your childhood. Well, I think the main thing, which I felt as far back as being in the womb, is that I wasn't wanted. I did not. I never felt wanted. Mm. I didn't feel welcome. I didn't feel wanted. So even in the, the earliest stages of my development, I didn't feel like I was okay or valued or that I want, you know, that I was wanted in any way. Um, now I, I was told that my mother stopped drinking when she had me, but I, and my intuition is that she probably didn't, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think the, I often will say I was raised by an anti-mother. Um, I just didn't feel like I could ever, voice my needs or have a right to speak out or speak up um there were all kinds of things that that did happen with her behavior towards me that was violating emotional uh, verbal um you know abuse on a regular basis i'd say neglect still is the ultimate mm-hmm. sort of shattering of my my spirit because neglect was just constant constant neglect. right and there was obviously abuse but um, not like beatings. I did not get beaten. And, but I felt so invisible. And I think that's tra- trauma too. I've had, I've heard stories of people that were beaten and they're just like, well, at least I knew I existed, but right. it's, all, mm. it, it, it's, I just, and then the divorce came along and I don't think I ever cognitively understood that it wasn't about me or that, that somehow mm-hmm. I personalized a lot around that. And then of course, babysitters were very abusive during that time. And that was deeply trauma, traumatizing. I still don't remember some of the stuff that happened to me, and that's still upsetting to me. I remember bits and pieces of what they did to me, but not not all of it. And um, and then I think just kind of being in between my parents, just torn, you know, really wanting to be with my dad because he cared about me a lot more than my mother did, and I just longed to be with him. And so there was a kind of a... a, a a dynamic of needing, wanting and needing to be rescued by my, my father, like, you know, all the time, you know, right. so it was dramatic not to be rescued because I right. you know, pray and pray and pray. And I'd be grounded for a week for some silly thing I did, maybe putting food. I thought maybe if I put food down the toilet, it was going to get stuck. <laughs> so I put, <laughs> I put yeah, my little brain, little brain said, oh, I don't want to put too much food down the toilet. It's going to, it's going to clog. And then they're going to know. So I put it in the corner. Yeah, I put it in the corner in the bathroom. Maybe oh. find a, you know, food that I didn't like peas or something that I had to eat. I know. find the peas and then I get grounded for a week, you know. Oh, gosh. And it was just like the, the whole violation about, you know, if you do this, you're a bad person. I think that really, really traumatized my brain. And it's always about, you know, you do something bad and you are bad. I think right. that's a very, you know, traumatic place to be in, in terms of limbic impairment too, how much I've taken that on. So, um, yeah, there were, I mean, those are the major pieces of trauma, just, just the abandonment, um, the neglect, the 
um, you know, there were threats of violence, but it was more, you know, verbal abuse and emotional abuse mm-hmm. on a regular basis. All right. Explain for our listeners uh, limbic impairment. Yeah, limbic impairment is something that I've been studying for, I don't know, just a few months now. There's a book, uh, there's an article about childhood in the brain, and it really describes that when we do not have proper nurturing, our nervous system and brain are affected by that. And so limbic impairment is where I, I'm, I go into uh, a personalization and I can't get out of it. It's like a looping, mm-hmm. effect, a looping effect in my brain that happens that I literally feel very powerless over, although that, now that I'm naming it. Um, it's also the 15 styles of distorted thinking, you know, just, just loss of uh, a sense of safety or trust or mm-hmm. um, that I'm okay. It's very exaggerated. Limbic impairment issues end up being, you know, catastrophic expectations. That's that's one of the symptoms of distorted thinking. That right. I, you know, I could definitely have in spades because of where I come from. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, there's more about limbic impairment. A lot of it is the brainstem I'm learning, like, is the formation of where we start. Right. If that's in, embedded, and if there's trauma embedded when we first come out, and there's, you know, a lot of, a lot of limitation, a lot of belief mm-hmm. systems that formed about not, you know, not being able to achieve, and that's been a huge problem for me is just distrusting myself to, to achieve what I want to achieve. Right. Yeah, I love Dr. Bruce Perry's research on the early development of the brain, and he says, you know, a lot of these stress responses and early neuron pathways were developed before we had language, of course, but we didn't even have memory. So we have all these responses and there's no memories tied to them. And it's incredibly difficult to try to pin them down or to reroute them and make new pathways. I'm really glad you said that because that's, that's it. it. The early trauma has caused so much of this disconnect and the, the problem of having all these feelings, but not knowing quite where they come from. And it, it's right. been a, a crazy journey. I'll say recovery is a journey out of insanity. But the emotional flashbacks, the regression states have been very, very, you know, long. And, and it's been a long road to, to understand, you know, how deep those go and what I can do to help myself when I'm in a regression. Right. And I think it's really important for people to know that regression is a part of this, whether you call it regression or relapse or an emotional relapse. We do, especially when we get under stress, revert back to these old patterns, these old neuron pathways. Unfortunately, we haven't found a way to disconnect them yet. We can try to make new ones, but under stress, we often revert to the old ones. I think, and I, think, I totally agree with you, it's so autonomic. It's just so built into, you know, wired into the nervous system. And stress really is, you know, the, the kicker. Uh, you know, it could be even minor stress can, can cause, you know, certain regressions. And then if there's a big trigger, look out. Right. I know I've figured out several years ago, probably 10 or 15 years ago, that my biggest job in recovery is to manage my stress. Mm-hmm. And that if I don't do that, I'm in big trouble and I'm headed for a relapse. When you were feeling particularly neglected, down, maybe depressed, did you ever tell anybody? Was there anybody you could talk to? No. No, there wasn't. Especially, you know, I I mean, I would always go out with my friends and do stuff, but we didn't talk. There was no talking, trusting, and feeling about what was happening in our our homes. In fact, 
a lot of it was I would act out and steal stuff or, you know, we, we play video games. We used to block off the newspapers and take all the quarters from the machine. We had, we had our strategies of getting our, our fix on the um, video games. No, yeah. I, I really, I really think I really did the opposite when I left my home. Now, of course, I got into recovery pretty early. But when I left my home during, you know, abandonment, neglectful periods, I would pretty much try to escape that feeling by mm -hmm. acting out. So no, there really wasn't a whole lot going on. Yeah. With people I could show with. Right. Again, looking at the research, I've been fascinated with Dr. Gabor Mott's research or Mate about trauma and recovering from trauma. And he makes the point fairly often that not being able to tell somebody is another trauma, mm. feeling like we have to keep it all to ourselves. Mm. I heard that from uh, John Bradshaw. And he yeah. cited Alice Miller a lot, that it's not so much the event, but it's, it's having to suppress it and keep it a secret. Right. Tell us a little bit about your high school years. I actually moved to another high school in the middle. I, I had did junior high school in Santa Barbara and then decided to go to Santa Barbara High after pretty amazing um, junior high experience. I had friends that I didn't want to leave by being in the high school, but I would be traveling a long distance to get to school every day. And uh, it, was, it was awkward for sure. Um, I would say I would go into major fantasy bond <laughs> In my high school years, I, I remember just longing for a girlfriend and just yeah. looking at a certain girl and just going into major obsession about that, that, that girl. And it's really embarrassing to say this, but I didn't, I, I didn't really have too much motivation to, like, I knew I wanted to graduate, but I didn't really care. Like, like there wasn't, I didn't, I, I didn't have much interest in a lot of the subjects in school and Again, I think my friends kind of sustained me in high mm -hmm. school, and but I was I was pretty alone. Now, and when I went to, um, I decided to go to a high school near near um, Isla Vista where I was living, and I do remember growing marijuana so mm -hmm. that I could give it away, <laughs> so I could have a few friends. Right. And it wasn't a bad strategy, um, except that when my marijuana had dried up. There was none left. These these people, you know, pretty much went away. Oh, so yeah. It was, you know, that's the kind of level of kind of codependency I was living out and just really pleasing a lot. I remember having parties at my house, and there'd be a lot of kind of destruction at, at my house, and it was not fun to, um, you know, just just see how much I was used or taken advantage, you know, taken for granted, all that stuff. And it was just my personality was I was from abuse and I want right. people to like me so much and so I was a real people pleaser in high school a major people pleaser didn't have a good sense of myself tried to fit into different circles and I did not <coughs> stick but I did start outing when I was 17 so that was uh, a game changer for me Did you started yeah. what I started outing when I was 17 oh outing okay very cool so that instantly gave me a place I did feel like I could talk for the first time mm -hmm. in my life. Yeah. You know, I was 17 years old. I went to, um, you familiar with the book, um, women who left too much. Oh yes, I am. <laughs> yeah. So I was at Robin Norwood's house for my oh, first wow. meeting and I was with Piper, her daughter. 
Mm-hmm. And uh, that, that Piper, her daughter, was on Alateen. And so we had my first meeting. It was at, at uh, in Montecito, California. Yeah. And uh, people cried. There was a lot of actual tears, emotion, yeah. like, you know, deep, you know. Right. And I remember f- feeling so estranged in that group, but so mm-hmm. comforted by real emotion for the first time ever. But I also right. felt a, a rage inside yeah. of me. There was a rage that said, I have been deprived of my natural emotions my whole mm-hmm. life. And at that moment, it was like, I hated my family even more. I wanted right. nothing to do with them. I just, I cut myself off from my mother and said, I do not, I don't want to have anything to do with you. And then I just pretty much was in program, you know, just working on myself at that moment, you know, in a different way that I never ever had before. Right. So did your parents do anything when you were in high school about your grades? I mean, did, were they pushing you? Did they want you in extracurricular activities? And if you were, did they come and support you? No, there just wasn't. I, I, I didn't. Like when I think back to high school, I just think about like getting by, just mm-hmm. getting through it, you know, just it was not joyful. And part of it is, is that I just have a different value system than what we learn in schools. You know, I'd yeah. love to be learning about the universe and, you know, out-of-body travel or, you know, something really interesting right. that, that would have really yeah. sparked my soul. But it, it just felt like, you know, the meaningless topics made essential. I didn't get pushed to get good grades. I was sort of a B student. My sister was, I should say that my sister was quite beautiful. She was actually quite mm. a, Bar- a Barbie doll, actually. She looked oh, a lot wow. like Barbie. And so I, I had a lot of inferiority, you know, issues around that. And my sister being so beautiful and felt like the ugly duckling type, you know, comparison. Right. You know, we compare and we despair. Well, I couldn't help it. <laughs> she was really <laughs> beautiful and I wasn't. You know, I was skinny and scrawny and she was skinny too, but she was beautiful. And so, man, right. she's the type of girl that when you walk down the street, people would whistle at her. Yeah. I mean, it, it was just, it was, that was also kind of embarrassing too, because she didn't really want all this attention. My sister was actually pretty shy. She didn't like it, all this attention on, on her, but right. she certainly got it. It was a part of her that soaked it up too, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I don't think many women really like that kind of attention. I didn't ever get any because I'm like you. I was not, at least how you describe yourself, I did not think I was particularly attractive and mm-hmm. never got that kind of attention in high school. Did you have romances in high school? You said you kind of fantasized or dreamed um, about them? I had my first girlfriend when I was eight. Well, there was, I had a fling with somebody when I was I was 17. Mm-hmm. And then I had a, a girlfriend at 18. So believe me, I, I felt way behind the, the eight ball when it came to dating. I, I, I knew nothing of how to really be present emotionally for a woman. And know about yeah. her needs at all, but... Um, yeah, I hooked up with somebody when I was eighteen, and, and we were we were close. It was it was nice to have a girlfriend, and yeah, um, yeah. I mean, again, it was so like it, it was so, it was such a long time coming, you know. Um, yeah, I, I did enjoy that for sure. Right. We didn't stay together that long. I saw the question. <laughs> I understand. I'm only <laughs> laughing out of identification here. Yep. 
That's my MO too. Although I tended to keep trying and trying and trying past the point that everybody would say to me, why don't you get out? And I just couldn't, but it was my own stuff. I think that's all the time we have for our talk with Scotty in this episode. Scotty will be back next week to tell us more about his journey into reparenting and recovery. So Scotty, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you. I appreciate the interview. Thanks for joining me for this episode. It was produced by me, Brita Firm, and edited by Vaughn David. Our music is by Emmanuel Wild. If you like what you heard, please leave a positive review and tell a friend. Also, tap subscribe and notifications so you won't miss a single episode. Remember, as you walk your reparenting path, you can take your time. You deserve all the love you want, and my love goes with you.